0: When I first started here at Randall back in 2016, we were a smaller congregation back then, and so I was needed, along with the other pastoral staff, I was needed to be involved in many different areas. You had to wear a lot of different hats when you're a smaller congregation. And so it came Christmas time that first year, and we didn't have a huge worship band, and so we, the pastoral staff, decided to form what we called the Pastor Band. If you remember, if you were here back in 2016, there we are, the pastor band, we called it. We had a few others that played along as well, Um, but we really took the mantle, the three of us, that's me on the right, Pastor Milo on the left, and Pastor Mario, who used to be our uh, family minister here, Um, he 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 played as well. I played drums, he played bass, Milo played everything, because that's what he can do. And we formed this little band because there really wasn't very much else. Like I said, we had a few other people that were there and helped and popped up, but primarily we had this pastor band that we ran on Christmas Eve, basically out of necessity. And as we as we kind of did it, along with a few others, we had to put a lot of time to figure out how it all was going to go. I'm not, I'm, you know, I. I was a former youth pastor, I could hack a guitar, I can play drums a little bit, but I'm not a musician, I would say. And so it took a long time, particularly for me, um, to be able to kind of figure out what was going on. We had a lot of rehearsals with this small band, trying to fill a big room like this up with a few different people, just a few small uh, group of people. And so a lot of time was paid, and even that day leading up to Christmas, we were here uh, rehearsing, things like that, and so uh, the families, the wives and the families, decided to actually, let's, let's have a dinner together. Let's, let's sort of, before the service, let's, let's set up a uh, center point, and we'll have a, we'll have a little uh, Christmas Eve meal together since we were all here practicing and getting ready for the Christmas Eve service. And that became actually a really sweet time. That became a sweet time for our families. We were small. We met in Center Point. There weren't a lot of us, but it was a sweet little time to kind of celebrate what God was doing at Randall. And we prayed that this might grow. We prayed that this little group would grow and that God would send workers. God would send people who would come to Randall and help bring a new life into this congregation. But for years, it actually became a little tradition of ours. This little group meeting in center point, having a meal, and then playing and worshiping that night at the Christmas Eve service. And then at the end of the night, it always felt right to take a picture of our little band, almost like a commemoration of the night and all the work that went into it and how God was working through us. This picture actually became a tradition. We take sort of the Christmas Eve picture at the end, to remember the the night that God worked and moved, and we put in all that time and effort. And like I said, but our prayer was always that that would grow and that more people would come into the picture as time went on. We'll get back to that in a little bit. For now, we're in this series. Like I said, we're in a series in Mark. We started a few weeks ago at a fundamental shift in the book— you see, the first half of Mark is all about Jesus displaying his messianic power. He's doing miracles and exorcisms and healings and teaching, and he's demonstrating to his disciples who he is. And of course, then it all culminates in, like I called it this midterm exam a few weeks ago, in which he asked Peter and vicariously through the all the disciples, who do you say I am? that's the question that answers the whole first half of mark who do you say i am and when peter uh, affirms and, and and proclaims along with the other disciples that you are the christ you're the messiah you're the one we've been waiting for then the book shifts and jesus attention shifts and now it becomes less about displaying his power and now about demonstrating what that power looks like, how that works in the world. And Jesus begins to turn his attention and his focus on Jerusalem. He turns his, he turns his face towards Jerusalem and he starts heading for the cross. And so that be actually becomes a a thematic moment in the second half of mark is this theme of jesus heading to the cross and all along the way he's going to teach his disciples this understanding this this death and resurrection theme this is going to become what we're really going to focus on in the series because that's jesus's focus as he marches towards the cross He's going to teach the disciples in many different ways, in many different contexts, what it means to die so that you may be raised to life. We die, and then we are resurrected. And it's going to take a whole journey, and even beyond that for the disciples, they even begin to wrap their heads around that. And So we are going to go on that journey with Jesus to Jerusalem, reflecting each week what does it mean for us how is Jesus communicating this central theme over and over again, and how do we embrace it as a, comu- as a community? We die, and then we are raised to life. And so our passage this morning is actually the second of three very specific teachings Jesus does on this subject. He Three times on the journey to Jerusalem, he's going to say it in as plain of language as he can. Then the disciples are not going to get it. They're going to make some mistakes. Jesus is going to exemplary. He's going to show us what that looks like. And then he's going to teach it again. So we're kind of in this rhythm in the second half of Mark. And so we've kind of finished the first round. Jesus taught... They went up the mountain to they uh, they went up the mountain to see Jesus' glory. They came down. The disciples are trying to uh, get a demon out of a boy, and they can't do it because they're not dependent on the Lord. And it's just—so Jesus is like, okay, let's start over. This is almost like Jesus' first reset. Okay, let's go back to basics here. We didn't get it the first time. Let's try it the second time. And here we have Jesus' second teaching, specific teaching, one of three, on this subject. They went from there, it says— and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples. He has to be very direct here, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Now, Galilee is where a majority of Jesus' ministry took place, but now they are just simply passing through They're not staying there anymore because that's not jesus's destination anymore his destination is jerusalem to the cross so at this point he they're just passing on by and it says that jesus doesn't want anyone to know because he is creating he's fostering this very intentional moment of teaching the disciples it's almost like he's walking through you know one of his hometowns and he's like listen i'm not going to call the buddies up we're not hanging out i don't want anyone to know i'm here because I need to focus specifically on my disciples so that they can get this. He's taking intentional time to teach his disciples these, three, these things because it is paradoxical and backwards from everything the disciples have ever been taught. And so it's going to take some time. What do you mean you're going to die? Because that's not what the Son of Man does. You see, Jesus uses the term Son of Man here. He says the Son of Man is going to be delivered. That's in capitalization because it's a title. It's a specific reference that everyone would have known that comes from a very important Old Testament prophecy in the Old Testament. So let's go back there. Let's take a look. Let's see what it is Son of Man means. Flip over to Daniel 7. If you have your Bibles, Daniel 7. This is where this term comes from. Very important, very critical prophecy in the Old Testament. In Daniel 7, Daniel receives a vision. He's in exile at this point. So Israel has, has sinned. They have fallen short. They've, they have been unfaithful again and again. And now they sit here in exile. They're being dominated by Babylon, dominated by Assyria. Pretty soon the Persians are going to come. And then, of course, we know the last empire, super global empire to come, Rome. And so, Daniel, in the midst of this exile, when everything seems to be at its—at its worst, he receives this prophecy, this vision, this dream, and in the vision, he sees four beasts. There are four beasts who come, and these beasts, they devour their enemies, and they're given dominion over the earth. These beasts, then, we are told, represent the kingdoms that would rise and rule over the world and subsequently rule over Israel, Babylon, Assyria, Persia. And then we're told of a fourth beast, the fourth beast. And this beast was greater than the rest, exceedingly terrifying, dreadful, and strong. It waged war against the saints and prevailed. And this beast represents the last super global power to rule over Israel, Rome. Rome would be the worst of them all, coming like a beast, devouring the saints. These are the visions of the beasts in there. But at the same vision, there was hope that God would eventually send the one who would take back power and triumphantly restore the kingdom of God. Take a look at Daniel 7, 13 and 14. After all the description of these four beasts, these four global superpowers that would come, God said, it says this, and then I saw, uh, Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So the son of man was a title. It's, it's what they, another reference to the Messiah. But it was very specific in that when you said son of man, you meant the one who is coming to fight off the beasts. That's the, that's the son of man. That's the specific one that's going to come. He's going to be given dominion. He's going to be given power. And these four beasts, particularly that one really bad one, that one at the end who is worse than all the others, the Son of Man would come and he would be given dominion. He would be given power. And he would be the fighter of the beasts, the Son of Man. The disciples would have heard that and said, oh yeah, the Son of Man, right. That's the one that's come to defeat the beasts of Rome. And have power and glory and dominion and then for jesus to juxtapose that term that title with weakness and vulnerability and death would have been unimaginable to a jew and in fact even today this is one of the main central reasons they can't get past jesus being messiah is because their Old Testament prophecies told them the Messiah wouldn't die. When the Messiah comes, that is it. It is over. And so the Jews, uh, these these, Jewish disciples are like, I don't, that's not right. That's not what we've learned our entire lives. No, no, the Son of Man, he's the beast killer. That's what the, that's what... They don't kill you; you kill them. The Son of Man, and of course, as a result, my Mark nine thirty-two. No, you know, no confusion, and no. Uh, we know why they didn't understand it. They don't get it, but they did not understand the saying. And not only that, they were afraid. That's scary. What, what do you mean you're not the you're not the one to fight them? What, what do you mean by that? They they are afraid. In the many rabbit trails I went on studying the word not understand, what I kept running into was this distinction between two different types of not understanding. One is you cannot understand in your mind. This is, if any of you tried to explain anything real mathy or sciencey to me, I just, I wouldn't get it. It's, It's a cognitive misunderstanding. You can't, I just don't understand what you're saying. My brother is an architect. He'll explain his job to me and I'll just be like, Cool. <laughs> right. I just I just don't understand it. Right. It's a it's a cognitive misunderstanding. I don't get it. But they said this word has more to do with not understanding in your soul. You see, you can not understand be in your mind, but it's a whole other thing to not understand in your soul. When you don't understand in your soul, it's like when you receive earth shattering news. Maybe someone very close to you dies. Or you're surprised by uh, unexpected pregnancy. Or someone suddenly loses a job all of a sudden. And it breaks down all your previous frameworks that you've built about your life. And all you can say is, I, I-, I, just, I just don't understand. Right? You understand but you just don't understand. I, I, don't, I don't get it. Everything I've built my life on, the, the frameworks, the, the whole setup, how I've seen the trajectory of my life, and all of a sudden something happens that breaks all of that down, and you're left going, I, I just don't get it. I mean, I get it. I know what you're cognitively saying, Jesus, but I don't get it. And when you don't understand in your soul, it brings out all sorts of responses, doesn't it? We actually see a gamut of them already. When Jesus tells Peter the first time, right, what does Peter do? He rebukes him. It starts with denial. No, 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 no. No, no, no. He denies it, there's a denial. Then we get to Mark nine ten. They keep the matter to themselves. Jesus tells them he's going to die and then he's going to be raised again. They keep the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. They're confused by it. They, they, Peter denies it. Then the disciples are uh, uh, confused by it. Then later in Mark 9, they did not understand it and then... They're afraid. It almost five, like, feels like the five stages of grief, right? There's like denial and anger and confusion and fear, right? Like, like they're going through all of these responses because when you don't understand in your soul, when you don't get it, when every framework you've built is coming toppling down, it's scary. It's scary. I thought we were headed this way I had all my plans I had all the things I was preparing for this what my family was gonna look like this is what my job was gonna look like these were the people that were gonna be part of my life all moving forward and then something happens an entire paradigm shift happens and you're left not understanding in your soul and you're afraid we die so that we can be raised to life. We don't understand in our souls. And what it often then does, it brings out one more response, and we see that response next in our passage. Let's take a look. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, Jesus asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest busted, busted. They're squabbling like children, and it's like Jesus' dad comes in, right? What are you guys talking about in here, right? Have you ever caught your children in the act, right? And you ask them, you know what they did, but you ask them, what are they doing? And they just, like, don't give you an answer, and you know, like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're like, oh, nothing, right? It's like, oh. Jesus' dad caught his kids squabbling and said, what, are you guys, what were you guys talking about? And they, they keep silent. They're busted for sure. And if you read back, you can see how this all developed. If, if you look back, if we look back on the passages before that and see how this thing is all moving, it's totally obvious what was happening and what was going on, right? Can you just hear it? Peter, James, and John get to go up the mountain. The rest don't. Right? The rest don't get to go up. We got to go up the mountain. Looks like Jesus is favoring us. Then the other disciples are like, "Oh yeah, but Peter, I heard about that whole tent thing up there. Yeah, smooth move, buddy. You really stuck your foot in your mouth there." Peter comes back at him. Yeah, well, we got down from the mountain, and uh, yeah, you were trying to do that little exorcism thing. <laughs> that was cute. That was really embarrassing. You got a whole crowd together and you couldn't do it. Good, good job, right? You can see what was going on here, right? All of a sudden they're on the way and they're like jabbing each other. Who's the greatest? Yeah, good job with the extra. I heard you on the mountain. You can see it. You can feel it. What was going on there? And then Jesus' dad busts them with the question. What were we just talking about? Ooh, not, not good. See, in their confusion and their fear, it's the next response. When your paradigm shifts break down, when you don't understand in the soul, you deny, you're confused, you're fearful, and then that begins, and it can begin to breed pride, arrogance, trying to figure it out, control, trying to figure it out yourself. It's the natural way of things. It brings out dissension, and it brings out pride. And Jesus busts them right on the way. But there's something else, I think, going on here. And I want you to take a look at this. Because we're told that they went to Capernaum, Capernaum, right? We're given that detail. And I've said many, many times, particularly in narratives, when the author gives you a detail that's not necessary. He's doing something. He wants you to know they were in Capernaum. So the question you ask is, why do we need to know that? Why do we need to know they were in Capernaum? What could we glean? What happened before in Capernaum? What, what's the history there that would help kind of our understanding of what's going on here? Because Mark didn't have to tell us they were in Capernaum. That, that's a superfluous uh, detail. We don't need that for the main story, and yet Mark wants us to know they're there. Why? Well, let's, when you look back into Mark and you see the last time Caper- Capernaum, they were in Capernaum, all of a sudden, you go, ooh, this sounds a little familiar. The last time they were in Capernaum, what happened was is that Jesus is there. He's dealing with a group bent on power. He asked them a loaded question, and they remain silent. Take a look. Again, he entered the synagogue at Capernaum, and a man was there with a withered hand. And the Pharisees watched Jesus. There's the group. To see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. There's the power. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, the Pharisees, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill it? But they were silent. Ah, it's almost as if Mark is recreating the scene. He's like, hey, remember last time we were at Capernaum, Jesus had to address this group of people, these Pharisees who were bent on power. He asked them a loaded question that he knew what the answer was, and then they remained silent because they knew the answer would condemn them. Yeah, that's going on again, but this time it's my own disciples. The Pharisees and the disciples, they share one thing, at least in common, is their desire for power and greatness— and control it's, it's the sinful nature in all of us. It doesn't matter if you're a Pharisee or a disciple. It doesn't matter where, who you are or where you came from. We all are bent and lean in to this idea that power and strength and control wins the day. And Jesus is reorienting. His whole journey to Jerusalem is reorienting our understanding of these things. So he went to Capernaum. And we look back and go ah he did that already again he's already had basically had the same conversation but this was with the pharisees and now it's with his disciples because we all have it but i actually think there's something else going on even more when you look at this story in mark this earlier story in mark three because we're told that the the need there was a man with a withered hand now i don't know about you but that actually seems a little random to me right? There, it feels like there's way bigger problems out there. There's sickness and disease and people with demon possession and all, you know, all of this stuff. And here we find this man with a withered hand. You're like, does Jesus have to waste his power on that? That seems like, that seems like you can deal with that one, buddy. That doesn't seem like that big a deal. And yet they, they make a very, uh, a whole story around this man with the wizard, withered hand. And the reason is because it's more than just a hand. In the bible a hand represents something it represents power and we see it all through the scriptures in exodus 14. thus the lord saved israel that day from the hand of the egyptians ezekiel 30 the prophets pick up the same thing they say things all the time like that i put my sword into the hand of the king and he stretches it out against the land of egypt this hand over and over again in fact we still use this idea today in our own language when we say things like haha you've fallen into my hands or you're in good hands when when you're in somebody's hand it means they've got some sort of influence or power or control over you and oftentimes, God delivers us from the hand of whatever enemy there is. So hand becomes this very uh, prevalent metaphor throughout the Bible of those who are in someone's hands or out of someone's hands, rescued by someone's hand, are condemned and fall, fall into it. It's all about power and control in that way. Now look what Mark does. Mark, throughout the book, uses this, hate, this idea of hand throughout his writings and we won't even get to the first half we'll just do our section right now last week how does jesus heal a demon possessed boy jesus took him by the hand and he lifted him up in a rose Ooh, there's some death and resurrection right there what does jesus do with his hands he lifts and heals and raises the boy we told is like a corpse he's dead remember And then Jesus, with his hand, lifts him up and raises him out. This week, in our passage this morning, how does Jesus describe what's going to happen to the Son of Man? The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. Two weeks from now, what are we to do when we're tempted to sin? If your hand causes you to sin... You cut it off. You get rid of it. Any power, any control, any temptation you have. I don't think the Lord is asking us to maim ourselves because the hand means something. What, what do we do? We cut off whatever power is in there. Three weeks from now, how does Jesus demonstrate welcome to vulnerable children? And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Five weeks from now, what is James and John's misguided request? Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left. Mark does this over and over and over again. Hand, hand, hand. The question is, how are you going to use your hands? Because you can use your hands in two ways. We use our hands to kill and to posture and to sin jesus uses his hands to welcome and to heal and to save and he will fall into the hands of men and he will die but in three days he will rise and we don't understand in our soul we don't get it and so what does he do last part of our passage this morning he sat down and he called the 12 again Oh, guys, I know this is hard. Come on, let's try it again. Maybe, maybe I'll, I'll do it another way. Maybe I'll say it another way. Okay, here we go. If anyone would be first, he must be last. He must be last of all and a servant of all. See, friends, I believe that like the disciples, that Jesus is calling us, this church, our community, into an intentional time of teaching. I said it a few weeks ago, I'm going to say it again, and throughout this series, I'm going to keep saying it. We've got now eight, nine weeks till Easter. And I believe what the Lord is asking for us is to each of us, ask the Lord, calling upon the Holy Spirit to say, where, Lord, what in me needs to die? In these next—will you intentionally teach—my prayer has been—will you intentionally teach this community in these next— It was 12, now it's nine. In the last nine weeks before we get to Easter Sunday, Easter morning, Resurrection Sunday, what amongst us needs to die? Where have we used our hands to posture and to tear each other down? And where do we need to learn from Jesus how to use our hands to heal and to love and to forgive and to save, to raise up? Us that are dead. Because we don't understand this in our souls. Because this breaks down any previous framework we've built. Everything in us is wired to believe that strength comes from power and control and conquest. Whether it's social or financial, control or achievement. And when this framework is challenged, our sinful nature responds with denial and confusion and fear and dissension and pride. And what we, I I pray, we will do as a community is we will each do the hard, good work to say, what in me needs to die so that this community can better look like Jesus? What is it for you? What is it for you? We use our hands to kill and posture and sin, but Jesus uses them to welcome and heal and save. And so Jesus please reorient us and show us where it is. How can we die so that we are raised to life? Which gets us back to Christmas Eve. And I'll invite the band up as we we finish up here. Over the years, God has answered our prayer and has brought wonderful, talented people, some of which are walking up right now, god has blessed our community and has been faithful to say yes this year then because god has said yes was a beautiful picture because we could no longer hold our christmas eve meal in center point it was too small so we went downstairs and we saw of families who are working production and music and all things it was like this beautiful summation of seven years of work that said look what god has done man he's grown this thing he's been faithful to us we can't even meet in center point anymore because people want to help and 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 the and talented people have come to bless us and make a beautiful christmas eve thing But I had another moment that night. I had a moment downstairs and I went, this is really good, but I had another moment. Because at the end of the the night, I was not needed. I wasn't on the band anymore. The pastor band was gone. I read a little bit, that was nice, but by and large, I wasn't needed. And at the back, I remember at the end, I looked up and I saw the band gathering for the picture. And my pride went, and the whispers of the enemy said, Ah, look, they don't need you anymore. They don't need you. You're missing out. You're not in the picture. And the question for us is, what does it look like to be obedient to Jesus? To say, I'm so glad I'm not in the picture anymore. I'm not needed. We have this talented, wonderful community that uses all of their gifts so well. I don't need to be in the picture. But something that night in me needed to die in order for a beautiful resurrection thing to happen. And it did that night. It was a resurrection thing where we celebrated Jesus with the most wonderful, beautiful music, with people who are way more talented and skilled than I ever will be. But in order to see the resurrection thing, something has to die. I want that for our community, friends. I want whatever needs to die here to die. So that beautiful resurrection things can happen. That on Easter morning we literally could come and gather together and say, God, look what you've done. This is more hopeful. This is more beautiful. There's forgiveness here. The gossip has stopped. We've we have celebrated that. I've 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 killed things off that needed to die. I've I went and forgave that person that I've held on to for so long. I'm free. thing that I was holding on to, that I built my identity on, I could let that go. And it's resurrection. That is my prayer. And I will keep p- plugging this throughout the series. What needs to die? And it's not going to be easy because it's, we're oriented in the opposite direction. We don't get it in our soul's And so we ask, Holy Spirit, let's just pray. Holy Spirit, will you help us in this? We're like the disciples. We're fearful. We deny. We're confused. And so it it rubs us with pride and dissension. And God, I pray that our community could be set free from some of these things. I pray that we could have a resurrection thing on Easter morning. So, Lord, Holy Spirit, even now, as you're speaking to each person here, identify the thing right now. What is it? What are you going to do? What needs to die so that we can have a resurrection thing on Easter morning? Lord, help us. We need you in this. Teach us. Be intentional. We love you. In your name I pray. Amen and amen.